I'm David Hershkovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Hello, my name is David Hershkovitz, and today my guest is Douglas Rushkoff, the author of many books, including Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity, Present Shock, When Everything Happens Now, as well as a dozen other best-selling books on media, technology, and culture. He is professor of media theory and digital economics at CUNY Queens. His television documentaries, Generation Like, Merchants of Cool, The Persuaders, and Digital Nation are required viewing in schools around the country, including my son's school. So that's, uh, I had a chance to see one recently. He lives in New York and lectures about media, society, and economics around the world. This is a very brief description of his achievements. His Wikipedia entry is uh, like a mile long and fascinating reading alone would make anyone want to meet him and talk with him. So we're very fortunate and I'm very happy to be here in his little crib studio spot in Hastings on Hudson to be, you know, top secret uh, location that cannot be revealed the address, but it's right above a, a parking garage, a parking lot. Most recently, he's turned his attention to Team Human, a podcast and a book. With Team Human, he has declared it's time to remake society, not as individual players, but as team players. So, Douglas, what makes this a radical proposition? This seems like a kind of a no-brainer. Oh, well, good. Then I'm done. <laughs> My work is complete. Um, uh, the reason why it's... it's uh, it's become a difficult thing is uh, so many of us are uh, kind of uh, addicted to one system or another that really has embedded contempt for human beings. And we will quite literally destroy ourselves and our planet in order to grow. That to me is an anti-human, anti-life agenda that's embedded in an operating system that we've come to accept as a condition of nature. Talk to any California West Coast uh, uh, libertarian digital uh, business person and they'll say, well, of course the economy has to grow. Of course we have to pay our shareholders. That's the way the whole thing works. And that's just one of many systems. And I guess the one that I lived through was watching digital technology, which I thought was going to rehumanize us. I got exposed to digital at the same time I was exposed to fantasy role-playing games and psychedelics and rave culture and all of these very pro-human, pro-autonomy, uh, connecting. Uh, they felt very... Uh, uh, like they were going to liberate us from the sort of the captive spell of television and consumerism and all that stuff that we were going to get our hands on the dashboard of all this stuff. And now um, 
most people are rather than trying to use digital as a tool to express human nature, we're using digital on human beings. You know, Facebook and Twitter, these are programming devices. You go to Stanford, you take a course in captology with BJ Fogg, and you learn how to embed someone's news feed with the algorithms from a Las Vegas slot okay. machine. Right. Okay. So let's, let's, so that's an anti-human agenda. A lot of, lot of uh, territory there. Right. A lot of years. Let's go back to those. I mean, I just the, wanted to make yes. the case that this is not a no brainer, apparently. Okay. <laughs> the brains are on the other side. Well, the brains are kind of wired in a way and, and they're actually using our brains against us in that respect. They are the, the icky part of our brain, not icky, but the one part of our brain that goes into fight or flight kind of panic responses down the, the amygdala down on the brainstem, computers are really good at talking to that part, but really bad at talking to the parts that kind of love and touch. And well, let's go talk connect. back to love. Let's go yeah. back to San Francisco <laughs> and um, when you, this you. period that you were talking about when there was a more like optimism about the technology actually coming to save us instead of actually, you know, contribute to our ruination. Uh, what was that like? What year, you know, give us a little bit more specifics of what you were doing and how you were spending your time and well, who you know, were you hanging out with? And You know, just to satif satisfy my parents' need for me to have proper pre-med requirements, you know, you could be any job you want as long as it's doctor or lawyer. Um, I went to Princeton and did undergraduate work there and found the other dozen people who were taking psychedelics, you know, which is maybe 12 of us. You know, and this is what year? <laughs> in the middle of the Reagan era, so it was a uh, nineteen. 80, 81, 82, when the young Republicans were kind of the big club at Princeton and, and the CIA was coming and recruiting uh, graduates, the ones who didn't go to Payne Weber, you know, went to the to, to Army Intelligence or whatever. Um, and there were a few of us who were just crazy people listening to Brian Eno records and throwing weird parties and talking about philosophy. And the ones who were even weirder and more tie-dye and Grateful Dead and Eno-esque than me ended up confusing me by leaving the arts and moving out to San Francisco to become employees of the big computer firms. They were working at Intel and, you know, even someone went to Northrop, you know, Intel and Apple. And, and it confused me because, I mean, I had been somewhat of a computer nerd in, in middle school and high school, but those were little pocket protector geeks. They were math kids. They weren't trippers going. And so I followed them out to find out, you know, why are you guys doing this? I, I really more as a journalist and a theater maker to kind of cover this story. And what I found out was that these guys, you know, they were, they were working at Intel during the day and then going back to Skyline Drive in Oakland and at night and scraping the buds off peyote cactuses and having bizarre psychedelic visionary trips. And they really saw computers as as psychedelic tools, that computers were an extension of human consciousness, of the nervous system, that they were uh, a way to expand consciousness, really, into these other dimensions. And they were using computers, you know, not to solve, you know, Excel spreadsheet problems, but to... Um, to, to model virtual reality, to draw fractals, you know, to do stuff that was really retrieved 
um, the archaic. You know, that's why Terence McKenna wrote about the archaic revival. It was part of the a very uh, a, a modern computer enabled um, uh, depiction of these new kind of hallucinatory realities. It, it opened possibility. And that was something that was going on as well with, throughout the community of, of uh, computer uh, people in those days, right? I mean, we know Steve Jobs and has experimented and who knows yeah. who else. So to what extent do you think that, you know, was it, it contributed or instrumental in developing computers? As I'd argue it was necessary. It was it was required. I I wrote a book called Siberia back in like 1991. This was a book that got canceled before it came out because the publisher thought the internet would be over by 1993 when it was supposed to be published originally. Wow. They thought it was like ham radio. Visionaries, um, huh? Yeah. But when I was researching that book, I was finding out that the largest tech firms were warning their programmers were warning their developers about upcoming drug tests because they knew they needed psychedelics people because psychedelics people were really the only ones comfortable hallucinating realities that would come into existence. You know, other people were really afraid of developing the internet, particularly, you know, once the internet became this kind of virtual reality that we use now, once it was desktops and folders, and once the net became this space for exploration, um, it was really scary to people who were used to uh, uh, terra firma, who were used to, you know, uh, reality not being uh, undermined in these ways, plus the the um, sense of control that you had um, programming something, that you were building worlds, was intimidating to a lot of people, but not so much to psychedelics people. So they were really, they were necessary. And yeah, Steve Jobs, you know, readily admitted, you know, many times that it was, you know, he and his friend Dan Kotke, who were doing acid at Reed College, that's when they got the idea for the personal computer itself, which nobody thought anybody would want. You know, and he was the one, he called it Apple for a reason. It wasn't a joke. This is the Apple, the forbidden fruit that, you know, that he was going to uh, uh, be, you know, a modern day Prometheus, you know, and so the, the computer and psychedelics to jobs at the, in the early days were kind of the same thing. And it was all part of the counterculture in general. Stuart Brand, for example, who was uh, very instrumental as part of the counterculture uh, was also a big proponent of, of the well, right? There was mm -hmm. this first of these um, online communities. Yeah, and Stuart Brand. So he basically goes from the Merry Pranksters and, and Electric Kool-Aid acid tests to then telling the counterculture, um, which he did. He did a talk at the one of the, I think, the Homebrew Computer Club meetings, and he said to the counterculture, look, come on in, the water's fine. This is no longer the tool of, you know, of the military industrial complex coming to control you. This is, this is what's going to make us into gods. And was this the same around the same time that you met Timothy Leary? And yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I got to take Leary online for the first time on the web. Oh my God! How, I was how, tell me about that. He loved it. I Where mean, were you uh, at his house in at his house in L.A.? You know, hooking up a uh, mosaic uh, with a precursor to Netscape, the, the browser. He had done some you know regular internet before, you know, FTP and Gopher, and everybody knew how to do those those line commands. But finally, um, I think it was on. Uh, on my Mac, my 100, you know, my little black and white Mac laptop at the time. And um, he was playing around with it and he says, Doug, you know, 
this is as powerful as acid. Only people won't have to swallow a pill. This is going to be the next acid. And and we talked a lot about it, and he ended up changing his book. He did a book called Exopsychology that looked at hum- humanity undergoing space migration. And he changed it after that. And he said, no, no, it's not outer space we're going. It's inner space. It's digital space. He, he changed the, uh, uh, the, the, the realm to which he thought we were going to migrate. And he believed that, you know, that this was kind of pure uh, light. He saw the internet as light, that we were communicating through, you know, these screens that were light. So it's like our, our minds and all would travel at the speed of light and we would be the neurons in the Gaian brain, you know, that human humanity would, would now uh, become part of this big uh, uh, neural uh, network. What what he also said, though, you know, it's interesting, his rules for taking acid were always that you had to be conscious of your set and your setting, right? The mindset that you were having when you took the drug and the setting in which you're doing it. And the original set and setting for the Internet and for this counterculture was we were going to use these tools to augment, you know, human consciousness and wire up a global brain. And now the set and setting, thanks to Wired and that awful pivot towards economics and business, it's to um, surveil humanity and extract as much value as we can from people. You know, and that's a really bad set and setting to use. You know, surveillance and control as a set and setting for an acid trip, imagine. Right? So here we are 25 years later, humanity is living on, a, on an essentially psychedelic substrate of digital media, and we're having a bad trip. You know, and this is this and is why, as and well. we're addicted. So, what happened? When did it happen? Do you do you know? Do you have a moment when you feel like the culture shifted and it was no longer had that uh, utopian techno utopia uh, aspect to it, and you felt like, uh oh, this is yeah. Not good. I mean, for me, it was early. You know, for me, the, the day I had that experience was before most people even had gone online. It was in 1995. On Mark Andreessen took Netscape public. What had been developed in a university as a nonprofit, it split into Mosaic, which was the nonprofit, and then Netscape. It was the first big internet IPO. And it was shocking to me because the AT&T had been offered the internet years before and they turned it down. They could have had it for like a dollar and they thought it was worthless because people are just talking and having fun. It was like a slacker's paradise. You know, it was like like that movie, Rick Linkletter's Slackers, the way the internet felt. People just talking and chilling and having a good time and we don't really need money anymore. And it was well, that. There was no purpose otherwise. You know, it wasn't right. about making money. It was about community and connecting. I mean, how great was it that you could like be have a group of people at the same time mm-hmm. discussing different ideas? It was. And the day that Netscape went public, turns out it was the same day that Jerry Garcia died, the guitarist for the Grateful Dead. And I took that to sort of, I took that symbolically as if, oh, this is the day that the internet is going to leave those 1960s counterculture values behind, that big Grateful Dead parking lot-like. Because uh, the, the internet was like a Grateful Dead parking lot. It didn't matter that the band was even there. It was, who are you finding? Who are you getting your falafel from off the back of a station wagon? It was that. And that, that Garcia died the same day Netscape went public felt like, okay, it's another one of those days the music died. And now the net is going to become this other, 
this other thing. So that was one. And the other was the invention of what they called one-to-one marketing. In like 1998, they came out with this term one-to-one marketing. It's why I wrote my book, Coercion, where I said, oh no, I see what's going to happen over the next decade or two. We're going to port all of the coercive uh, strategies from other media into the net. And it's going to be really scary because the net's going to be able to um, change itself based on how well it's doing. We're going to end up in a feedback loop with this technology and it's going to go dark. And people thought I was crazy. And in 99, they thought I was as crazy for saying the internet was going to go in a bad direction, that that was as crazy as I was in 1990 for saying we were all going to be using email. And how did they, and today, are you a prophet in in your own land? (laughs) How do people look at you now? You know, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to be as hopeful as possible, given our situation. So I'm trying to imagine scenarios where something essential about humanity makes it through to the next Okay, so era. so let's talk a little bit about that, about some of your current work in that in that area of Team Human, which has a big agenda, right, to try to first explain to us the situation we're in how we how we got here is not as important as the fact that we're here and we have this uh, kind of structural problem in in our lives because we are so attached to the digital world and as well as capitalism and all these other things that are out there and as a way to escape from that vortex into some sort of a more human frame of mind and you've come up with some some solutions or approaches to that. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, what I'm trying to do is to show that how digital technology kind of decalibrates us, you know, and it's just the end of a long effort. You know, digital is just the latest medium to do this. All our media kind of turned against us one way or another. Even, you know, the printing press uh, had a lot of problems, what it did to, uh, what it did to culture. And, uh, we do this with any great invention. So the fact that we're doing it with digital is no, um, it's, it's not new in that sense, but well, excuse me, you mean in the sense that it starts out with a promising future right. and then some the capitalism, let's say, or something right. of that nature. Exactly. We invent scripture, you know, and the ability to write so that we get, you know, the, the history of the Israelites and a covenant into the future about using law and ethics to, to, uh, build toward a messianic age hey, that's as good as anything Stuart Brand or Howard Rheingold or the early, you know, people on the well or Whole Earth Review said about digital technology. But then it turns out scripture was used to do what? To keep track of slaves, you know? And, and that's the main things we used it for was to, and to uh, write contracts that, that indentured people. I mean, not to get into Torah, but you look at, you know, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and teaches him how to, uh, how to use debt in order to enslave all the people. Accountant. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's the nice Jewish accountant, but he came up with some really nasty, um, nasty tools. I mean, so it, it, since we did this to ourselves, of course, it's one civilization. I'm not trying to blame blame Jews here. I'm trying to say this is what 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 we inevitably do. So with digital, we've we've decalibrated ourselves. We've made it really hard. Uh, to engage with one another in real life. You know, every semester that I'm teaching at Queens College, every semester I get more notes from students on the first day from their doctor, 
saying, you know, please excuse Johnny from class participation or from doing presentations because he's got, you know, social anxiety and it's always boys. And I think, what did these people do K through 12? You know, they sat on their iPads and learned their algebra, but, you know, they didn't use the live incarnate classroom experience to teach people how to be with one another. You know, we when we use the net to engage with other people, we're always going to end up divided and atomized. That's what the technologies are built to do. They're intentionally built to atomize people into separate camps because that uh, the, the more sensationalized and triggered that you are, the more you're going to click on things, the more engaged but you're going to be. At the same time, the story is we're br- they're bringing people together. Facebook is bringing your friends, you know, you have a lot of people that you can communicate with. It's not really, is it separating us? or It is, can actually. You- it's putting people into groups, you know, but usually not with groups of people who are around them in real life. It's groups that you can uh, agree with about a particular issue, especially because you're not even seeing them online. So you got your Bernie people, your Warren people, your Trump people, your Ease ones, and you'll feel it on the net, the way the net encourages this kind of divisiveness to watch all the Warren people saying that the Bernie people are Bernie bros and the Bernie people saying, oh my God, the Warren people are kind of overly, you know, triggered woke people. It's interesting because at the same time, you know, a lot of real life conversation is going on about cutting toxic people out of your life as friends. So if you have friends who you think are toxic, you should just get rid of them. And uh, which is like sort of re-experiencing an online thing where you can just sort of shut people out as opposed to, well, you have a friend and, you know, suddenly you have an argument, oh, I'm just going to cut that person off. You know, the the final result is actually you've hurt yourself. You've lost yeah. a friend that you've had for many years that you can't really replace. Right. You can't cancel people. You really cannot. <laughs> Not in real life. I mean, you can. I guess online they get canceled. But you can't. I mean, unless you've got like a real Harvey Weinstein in your life, then stay away because he's going to rape you and stuff. You know, that's a little bit different. Yes. But right. We're, 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 we've grown uh, intolerant in the, in the sense that we can't tolerate difference from each other. And... You know, that's why it was funny. I went to, um, it was years ago now, I went to Rome and saw in the evening in Rome, in the residential parts, there's just people outside at night. There's like an old lady and there's a couple of kids at her feet playing and there's teenagers making out and there's guys, you know, smoking and gambling and they're all together. It's like, what is that? It's so foreign to us in it's America. It's an Elena Ferrante novel. <laughs> it is, but you see like three or four generations of people just kind of hanging out, not even in a commodified way. They're not even spending money. I mean, it was so anti-American. My God, you're not spending. You're not contributing to the economy. But it requires the ability to, to tolerate one another. You know, the, the message of this book, and it's funny because I borrowed it from um, Timothy Leary, and it's right on the back cover. There's no blurbs. I just put find the others on the back of the book. And the idea is that that's sort of the one command I have is find the others. and in The this, others who don't agree with you? Well, yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, when Leary said it, it was um, in a 1968 lecture in Berkeley. This girl got up and said, oh, I've just had the, my first psychedelic experience. I've seen the world and our connectedness. What do I do now? And Leary said, oh, find the others. And at that point, he meant find the others who've had that experience. When I say find the others, I mean 
find the other. Find the human being in the person that you're now considering other. It's 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 the the guy wearing the MAGA hat is a human being. You know, you don't see that. You can't just see it as a tag. Oh, good. That's one I avoid. That's the other team. It's like no, he's on your team. He's on your team, and and our our media, our markets, our our uh, those in power have led us to believe that that's the other side, that they're red and you're blue. But that's just a way for CNN and MSNBC to market politics. So have you gone out and on your own and and made efforts to meet people of all kinds? Is that something yeah. that you're dedicated? Who's time ever around? To? I mean, yeah, it's interesting because. Uh, I mean, partly in choosing this town, we're, we're in Hastings on Hudson. Ha- Hastings is a, is, a, is a divided town. There's sort of g- generations of people who were descendants of the factory workers here. And then there's all the sort of Brooklyn, Manhattan transplants. And it, this is not a this is not the townies a, versus uh, it is in a way. And this is a town where you didn't see much like Hillary or Jeb support. It was all like Bernie or Trump support. Right. <laughs> so it this kinda, is in the last election. Yeah. Bifurcated kind of little little community. But but uh, unified in the in the sense that they all want some sort of serious change, not just uh, everything as is status quo. Well, yeah, and they want to kind of reify a local human reality, you know, the reality that we're in rather than this uh, neoliberal hallucination that they're, they're foisting on us. Well, uh, one of the things that you wrote in your book, there's a reason for our current predicament, an anti-human agenda embedded in our technology, our markets, and our major cultural institutions from education and religion to civics and media. It has turned from forces for human connection and expression into ones of isolation and repression. So uh, is, the, is the opposite of that also true? I mean, in the sense that in the same way that you are, you know, trying to find the space, you know, separate from that to create like a different version of, of the humanity of where we are, that at the same time there are countercultures or microcultures of people who have also made the same realization that are, you know, coming together in book clubs or there's so many ways that people are meeting in real life now that somewhat in opposition to this, or do you feel that there's yeah, like two I trends? Do. People rediscover their local incarnate reality in one of two ways. Either they use so much sort of digital stuff that they come around the other end because they're just aching for companionship and contact or they're so poor that they can no longer afford to do the kinds of experiences that are so you know <laughs> that 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 they want us to buy so you you kind of hit the wall but you hit the wall one way or the other and then the first thing you do is you find someone else you say dude are you experiencing this too and you get a bit of validation and it's like wow you know where is everybody? What happened? Where? <laughs> yeah. So what do you do? You have to go and actually make an effort to reach out and try something different that you right. haven't, you know, been doing before. And if you're in much of America, you find out, or oh, I don't know if we, we got to read to find this out, but you certainly find out experientially that the landscape itself, that the, the, the suburban and exurban and the landscape has been designed to prevent the sort of human interaction that you're looking for, the sort of human interaction that breaks the spell of capitalism. You know, you look at the you look at the plans for Levittown, you look at the letters between the 
the Levitt brothers who built Levittown, the first kind of Long Island planned suburb. Look at the letters between them and the Roosevelt administration where they're saying, yeah, this is going to work because the GIs are going to come back. These are really traumatized guys. They might form gangs. They might form unions. They might get really angry. Put them in these little houses, create enough work on the weekend to give them a lawn of this size. They calculate the size of the lawn, so they're going to have to mow the lawn. It's going to take this many hours. Their mortgage is going to be this much. If a person has a mortgage, they're not going to want to lose their job because they need it. You know, and, and they can expand their house like this, so they'll all be competing with each other for who's added the addition yet and who's done that. And we're not going to have places for them to congregate. You know, we're not going to... And it was like, wow, they really designed this to prevent what they were concerned prevent men from gathering and and particularly men and and uh, speaking with each other to prevent there from being unmonitored social spaces like the cities like the urban experience right Right. And it's really, it's, it's amazing. And then you see, well, right, I live in this town, you know, but there is no town center. There is no place to go. There's strip malls and a highway and auto dealers and wait a minute, and a mall. Where, how, what, how do I just, in an impromptu way, how do I happen upon other people? And that was the net at the beginning, right? The net was we would just surf and there was that sense of serendipity and yeah, because you had there was no uh, Google, right? So you couldn't <laughs> find anything, and you the only way you could find is by exploring on your own and right. you know see where you landed. And now there's not even a Google, right? There's it's not a Google. There's your Google, and my my Google search results are different than yours. You can't even search the web. All you can do is receive instructions of where to go from an algorithm that's more about tuning you than you are about tuning it. And also about advertising because a lot of those listings are paid for. Yeah. So when you look for a restaurant, you're going to find like the top 10 or places that are actually ads or... Of course, exactly. And even on your Google map, you know, if they don't pay, they're not there. So you're not even on the map. And if people are looking at the map and the GPS rather than out at the real world... I mean, you've got a really a lot of power over over what people see. Yes. I mean, I don't think anybody ever anticipated that it would go to this extreme. No, I really don't. I thought we would have gotten really nauseous, you know, that that uh, there's a sense of vertigo that you get in a Google map that I thought would have alerted people to the fact that this is not the world that this is that you don't need this symbol system to engage with the world you could engage directly do you feel like that the our current political situation has to do with the technology uh, obviously twitter and you know and trump is you know made for twitter and but to the extent that it divides us and keeps this conversation like going in the way that does not bring yeah, us together i think that we're not um we're not so conscious of the way different media environments engender different uh, uh, emotional, psychological, and perceptual states. So, you know, we lived in a television media environment. You and I were raised in a television media environment. And, and whether or not you were watching a lot of TV, TV was our world. You know, the, the moon landing was experienced simultaneously. The Olympics. Uh, television is what created globalism. It's what created the, the, the one world, the big blue marble. It was part of that, you know, seeing the earth from space and the Apollo landing. And, you know, all that was, was about one 
world and all of the the barriers came down. The the peak of the television era is Ronald Reagan standing at the Brandenburg Gate saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You know, the digital media environment has very different biases. The digital media environment is about um, discrete things. You're either one or zero, yes or no, here or there. Everything's like a snap to grid in a graphics program. You know, there's no in between. Everything is auto-tuned to one quantized level or the other quantized level. You know, like that share song, you can hear her voice. There's no in between, right? It's is no, there's not, that's noise. <laughs> I like your share impersonation. Well, thank yeah, you. Right. But you know what I mean? <laughs> that, that, that's, there's that. And everything digital is memory. It's all on memory. You know, it, all processing happens in RAM. It's built in memory. So the two biases of the media environment are discrete, one zero, boundaries, and memory. And then you think, well, what did we get? We get Brexit. Right. Just go back to when England was separate. You instead of getting, you know, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall, you get Donald Trump building walls or let's make America great again. Remember, remember those days. Of course, it's a false memory. You know, great again means, you know, white supremacy. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's the idea of memory, false memory and retrieval and remembering our nation, our, our boundary conditions of our nation states, all these things that were kind of being dissolved for better and for worse. And because the problem is, I mean, I was part of the WTO protests. I was against the World Bank and the IMF and the you know World Trade Organization and the way these you know giant you know NAFTA trade deals were leading to slavery and the lowered wages and all that was that was a, a crock, right? That was the global neoliberalism uh, uh, hurting us. And now this is a different kind of this is digital capitalism hurting us. Well, because, you know, as you've suggested and seems to be the case that we're so much like hardwired into that way of looking at the world and trying, you know, our best to kind of live with that. I think more and more people are beginning to understand that they're captives of their phone. That doesn't mean that they could actually put it away. But, you know, people at least are starting to recognize that, that they have a problem, you know, the first yep. step. So I think we all know we have a problem at right. this point. Some kids don't. I mean, I think the kids, a younger generation, are, are not feeling that in the same way as, right. as we are. The interesting thing to me about the young kids, and I know it's bad and it's owned by the Chinese army or whatever, but that TikTok as an app, you know, TikTok is sort of like uh, uh, YouTube Junior. It's this like uh, this... Uh, app through which kids make little videos for each other. And, but the videos they make are dances. That's like the dominant medium there, the, the dominant form of content. So one teenage girl will like make up a dance to some pop tune and then the others will watch it and imitate it. And like the way they do comments is basically doing their version of that dance. So at least it's like, they're not texting and emojiing. They're moving. It's, it, feels a little bit more like, you know, mimesis, one body like imitating another. I know that uh, I listened to one of your recent podcasts where it came up, this idea that, you know, it's sort of the responsibility of the creative people, the artists, and the people who are in a position to 
help foster this change because of this particular way of looking at the world and, you know, not a new idea, right? Because we know about, you know, the revolution in France in the 60s mm-hmm. where they had, uh, I forget the name of that uh, group that... Uh, uh, the Situationists? The Situationists, yeah. thank you. Yeah, the Situationists who were like the artists, you know, who were like the forefront of the revolution. Basically, the workers are no longer the forefront of the revolution. Now it's like the artists and the, and the culture workers. Do you agree with that? Do you think that there is a, a way for people in the arts and, and to to try to break through the noise? Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's everybody. I feel like in some ways we need a population of people celebrating and championing what human beings can do, that champion the, uh, a human value other than our utility value. You know, this is what Norbert Wiener, the guy who invented the term cybernetics in the 1950s, this is what he was talking about, that, you know, that we're going to have these machines. And if we compete with machines for utility value, we will lose because a robot will always be able to sleep less and pick more cotton and do whatever more than us. So we can only com- we can only compete or or share what only humans can do. And what only humans can do is in those spaces between the digital numbers. You know, we were talking about like autotune. Autotune, what are the values of autotune? I mean, imagine James Brown being <laughs> autotune. Well, we could all sing. That's one of the values. Right. Well, you well, we can all sing on the note, yeah. but a computer is always going to be better a better autotune. The the values of autotune say that that James Brown reaching up for the note or coming down in over the note, as only he could do, the autotune sees that as noise. That's noise because it's off the signal of the actual note that he's intending. It's like that's not the noise. As far as humans are concerned, that's the only real signal in the song. That's the music. That's the music. But we've forgotten, right? We forgot. We've reversed. We think that the notes are the music, but it's not. It's the human instrument. The, the music is the excuse for us to hear another human instrument. And all those places that are supposedly the error, that's how we communicate. That's the content. That's the content. The error. Um, thinking back now to, you know, back to the Timothy Leary full circle um, with regard to the 60s and 70s, because, uh, you know, the, mm. the world as it was, it was a, a Vietnam War was a big factor in, in a lot of the protests organizing around it and getting the, the counterculture it, it cannabis and was a big part of that as well because that was how you're kind of signaled that you were a member of the counterculture. Right. So you had long hair, you smoked a joint. Uh, well, you're one of us, you could be my friend. And, <laughs> and people really connected on that level. And at the same time, it did create this so much change of which we're still experiencing today in the way we look at our at the world whether it's like food how we grow uh, food what we eat whole, uh, whole food whole earth uh, a lot of the important ideas that we have today whether it's uh, for women's rights civil rights um, you know the list goes on so acid and it's and, and cannabis but you know certainly acid in a way to help you burst out of the structure that is keeping you bound into this way of thinking mm. that is part of the culture, right? The way the culture sort of makes you want to 
look at the world a certain way. So how do you get out of it when it becomes such a powerful force? So one of the things, you know, that happened was psychedelics, which I don't think are given enough credit in today's right. world because it was put away into this, you know, deep hole, like bury it as like this evil thing yeah. that people used to do. But it was a very important catalyst for change that a lot of the best things that we have today, I believe, came out of that. So it's been like sort of a hidden thing. But now it's coming out again, right? More and more people are beginning to experiment with that. So my question is, do you think that that's something that we should be advocating in a way to break out of the structural way of, of how we see our lives in a way that we can't escape so that you need something so powerful in our consciousness to get us to show that we can escape, that there is another way of doing things. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing to me about the current psychedelic survival is how it's being framed in this kind of a Tim Ferriss-like, you know, uh, utility value that, you know, you know, don't, you don't, you don't need to trip with these mushrooms. You're going to take, you know, 0.2 milligrams every third day. Or Michael Pollan. Too, right. right. In order to, you know, you'll, you'll trade your stocks better. You'll um, be able to cope with, you know, the, all this or that better. Um, so, where I get concerned is when we're using drugs simply to be able to endure bad stuff. In other words, to, to work make, better. It's like work a work better. drug in Silicon Valley, right? Don't right. we understand that people are microdosing so they could work better? So right, and longer and whatever. And, and rather than to see better, you know? <laughs> and and it, again, it feels like it's being... Uh, decontextualized, you know, taken out of its spiritual, sacred, um, uh, psychically necessarily dangerous role in our lives and being made to almost enhance your security. You know, oh, you're going to keep your job. It it's almost has the opposite uh, uh, function. You know, on the other hand, I, I always felt that the, the uh, acceptance of, of gay marriage and the legalization of pot were both results of the, the collapse of privacy in a digital age. It's like if Facebook and Google and all these places are really going to know what we're doing, then you're going to have to make most of the stuff that people are already doing legal. <laughs> you're not going to accept all this, a camera on your phone, you know, looking at you all the time if you're gay or if you smoke pot because – You'd be fucked, right? <laughs> so, right. So I feel like in some ways it was like it was like surveillance capitalism's compromise was to say, okay, we're going to let you have these, we're going to let you have this stuff so that we can keep a camera on you all the time. It's like, all right, if pot's legal, then I guess who cares if they see me, right? Because whatever, what are the two things that people did that were, you know, at least a majority of people, did, right? Sex and drugs. <laughs> if sex and drugs are legal, you know, and I can be trans <laughs> and this or do it that or masturbate or, oh, everybody's doing it. It's all good. You know, so it's, it's kind of interesting. I always look at those, um, they always have the sci-fi plot. It's kind of this black mirror thing that it's like people get caught masturbating right from their camera on their on their computer and it's like no would i prefer people not see me masturbate at my computer well yeah but it's like 
is that going to cost me the presidency or something that they saw me? <laughs> Everybody does it. Maybe. It maybe. It well, I guess. Depends what they see. How they yeah. see. How I do it. What my stroke frequency is or something. But it's like, you know what I mean? I don't feel, it's like those things are no longer shameful, you know, in the, in which is an interesting, it's an interesting side effect, I just think. So you feel that that's the benefits of, of Facebook so <laughs> right. far. Is like, we're allowed to so so we should pot, thank, we're allowed to be trans. Okay, well, yeah. good, good. So we found like some positive thing in yeah, all it, of these it things. Yeah, it is kind of funny. But it's interesting. So you've probably had the experience now of smoking pot legally. Yes. Right? Really legally. I mean, not in even Vancouver. Fake. Yeah. Nationally, have, it's legal I, in all of Canada. The day it was possible to get it, I got a marijuana license from the state of New York because I get migraines and they're legal for migraines. And I smoked legal pot. And first, I was thinking, this is such a different context, right? Now it's like legal. Will it still be fun? Will it still be weird? Whatever. And it was in a uh, kind of a vaporizing pen. So it looked, and it came with like a prescription on it. So it looked like, you know, God Doctor's knows what. Orders. Yeah, like Ambien or something. It was like a whole thing. And I'm sitting there like for a couple of minutes thinking, oh, this is going to be weird. And then it was like, Oh wow, this really worked. I mean, it's real pot. Your migraine it's, was gone. Yeah, and yeah, but it was it's real. It's just real it pot. Yes, of course. It's real pot. No, <laughs> it's I, the same people who are selling it legally are selling, selling it, it to the so medical. So I was I thought, you know, cuz cuz conspiracy theory that they would like take oh, out the to. pot part or not let it have the thing or whatever. But you know, it's actual pot. It is pot. And um that was kind of weird cuz I thought it wouldn't actually work now that it or it wouldn't be Right. It's like, you know, having sex after you're married or something. It's like, oh, now, does this count as sex now? Or is it, you know, part of some... And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because yeah. from what I hear that the younger people are not that into weed. I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just a... Well, it's also part of the whole vape, you know, culture. Yeah. They know that those things are bad for them. Those, uh, the real vaping, right. uh, whatever those are called, uh, uh, jeweling and all yes. that. They know it's just going to kill them. So... Uh, that's a whole other story. But it, it is interesting. But but no, it's not like I don't want pot to become commonplace. I think that's fine, and I think it's healthier than alcohol. But, I mean, I remember being surprised in college when I saw this movie about – I forgot what it's called. It's a documentary about the ACDC concert parking lot. <laughs> and there are these guys doing acid in the ACDC parking lot, but they're doing acid and like breaking bottles and crushing beer cans on their head. And I'm like, wait a minute, how could they do acid and still just be morons? And that was when I realized set and setting actually matters, that none of these drugs are intrinsically liberating. It's not like you can just give, you know, oh, give Donald Trump some pot and all of a sudden he's going to be, right. you know, you don't know though. greenhouse. We don't know. He's not, we don't, you know, and, and JFK got the acid. I mean, and it did, it's why he got killed. I still believe it, you know. You know, the, the no. whole story. They got, um, what was her name? Uh, um, came to Leary and got acid and, and tripped with uh, JFK a few times. And that's part of why he was all into, you know, disarmament and, and different arrangements and not doing to Cuba what he's supposed to. And, you know, you can't, you, at that time, they could not tolerate a president who's actually wants to make some kind of radical change. And you, yeah, we, today we would prescribe it. It would be something... Interesting to have, you know, if you're going to be president, you're required to take at least one, have one psychedelic experience, <laughs> right. put it into 35 years old plus one psychedelic, well, add supervised that to, uh, by us. Add that to Extinction Rebellion's demands, right? Well, 
Doug, thank you so much. <laughs> you really have taken us on a on a, a journey here. Oh uh, well, thank going you. Back and in time and into the future and present and all those places in between. Uh, I, I I appreciate that. And and really and and to your credit and the credit of the plant around which this show has been organized, I would say that the the you know the the hallucinogens are are have been you know not solely responsible, but but a major part of being able to do the pattern recognition required to, to see things as they are. You know, I'm not saying, oh, just be stoned all the time. But in order to be able to pull out um, and, and deprogram for a moment, to, to, to withdraw from the hypnotic spell of, of both capitalism, mainstream media, military industrial complex, you name it, um, you need to be able to stop time, you know, to, to stop time, to pull out of that for a moment, to really, you know, drop out. That's what it meant. It doesn't mean drop out of the world. It means drop out for a moment so that you can really, you know, t- tune in uh, to what's happening. Amen. Thank you, <laughs> Douglas Rushkoff. Thank you, David Hershkovitz. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture. Brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at ShopBurb.com forward slash Light Culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. Mm-hmm.